hood. Baseball Universe, it's your boy, half man, half podcast machine, Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network, back with yet another scintillating episode of Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ballplayers and their stories. I want to thank you for dropping by this week and uh, welcome all of you in. As I've said from show one... Uh, I love my expanding audience, and I have too much respect for you guys and gals to nickel and dime you. I will never crowdfund you or Patreon you. 
in this economy? You kidding me? No, not going to do it. That just runs completely contrary to my DNA makeup. So, in return for giving you this dope content for free, all I ask is that you follow, subscribe, download the shows. Backwards K-Pod is available on all major platforms, wherever you listen to your pods. Or you can visit our website at diamondsnakejake.podbean.com. If you're on Apple or Spotify user, please rate and review as you see fit. I ain't scared. All these little things, they keep the content free. And it puts a little change in the old bank account for the snake. You can find us on Twitter at backwards underscore K underscore podcast. Or you can email the show backwardskpod at gmail.com. And now, all of our audio podcast shows from here on out for Backwards K-Pod are being transferred to the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network YouTube page, uh, which is pretty cool. I got interviews with guys like, well, I got the last interview with J.R. Richard before he died last year, Kenny Singleton, baseball artist Craig Kreiler, and so much more. By all means, stop by, subscribe, check it out, as that looks like that's going to be probably my next project is uh, building that Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network YouTube page. And now, after all that out of the way, let's get after it this week on Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ballplayers and their stories. Uh, thankfully, opening day 2022 is inside of two weeks now. We got some great storylines developing in both the AL and NL East, as well as the NL West. There are some great prospects about to embark on their Major League Baseball careers. I personally, I can't wait to follow. Uh, I'll be intently watching guys like Adley Rutschman and Seiyu Suzuki as they begin to write their stories. And that's what this show is all about, the stories. It really is true. When James Earl Jones says in Field of Dreams, the memories will be so thick you have to brush them away from your face. And well, this week, I have one of the craziest baseball stories you've probably never heard. And it's the story of the Mutt and Jeff Bandits. And before I tell you the story, I want to give you the background, the genesis, so to say, of how I first heard this story. Okay? So, 1992, I'm a 21-year-old kid living in West Baltimore, Maryland. Oriole Park at Camden Yards has just been built and... Watching this amazing structure, this shrine to everything that's right about baseball, watching it go up, it was obvious that this stadium was going to be a veritable game changer. And it only reinforced my love for baseball. (laughs) After all, it was only two years earlier that me and my boys used to hang out in the then dilapidated Camden Station, smashing parking meters and stealing the change. That's another story for another pod. I digress. So, while watching this groundbreaking structure go up, I knew I needed to be as close to the stadium as humanly possible for the inaugural season. I found a job literally two blocks up Utah Street, just a long fly ball way at a baseball bar called Bleachers. And the owner of the bar, Ernie Tyler, was the bat boy for the Orioles during the 70s. His father, Ernie Sr., was the fabled ball boy for the Orioles for 51 years. If you, if you remember uh, any of those old Oriole 
games. There used to be an old guy who used to sit behind him and play. That was Ernie Tyler Sr. That was the owner of this bar. That was his father. He was a he was a ball boy for the Orioles for 51 years. His brothers, Jimmy and Freddie, were clubhouse managers for years. In fact, Freddie is still the Orioles clubhouse manager to this day. And it was a great job. I, I, I didn't make a lot of money, but I did meet my daughter's mother there, and that was cool. And being that the Tylers are made men in the Orioles organization, I probably went to about 30 games for free in that new stadium, and I began meeting all kinds of pro baseball types. Like the time Dean Palmer and some of the uh, some of the Rangers came in, and we had to teach them how to eat steamed crabs. Or all the times sitting with pitching guru Ray Miller, smoking cigarettes and blasting shots of scotch, while he tells me stories about Jim Palmer and Earl Weaver, you know, their feuds through the years. But, hands down, my favorite guest was the couple of times former MLB catcher Rick Dempsey would come through. And Dempsey is a legend in Baltimore lore. He... Winning the, ninth, the uh, MVP in the 1983 World Series, it cemented his status in that town. And he also caught Oral Hershiser's World Series clinching strikeout for the Dodgers in the 1981 World Series. And one thing about Dipper, he has a larger-than-life quality about himself. The man knows how to hold court. He's intelligent, witty, very personable, and an engaging person. On one occasion, Dempsey comes to the joint. And there's about six of us left at the bar, and my girlfriend and Ernie are behind the bar. And at some point, someone says something like, Man, Rick, I know you've seen some crazy shit in your career. What's the craziest thing you ever saw? And Rick pauses a second, sips on his beer, and he's working us. He's got a story. You, you, you can see it. Well, guys, he says through his iconic mustache, the, the crazy thing, the craziest thing I ever saw, it didn't happen at the show. It happened in Little League. And this is the beginning of our story, the Mutt and Jeff Bandits. In 1963, Rick Dempsey was a 14-year-old boy playing Pony League travel team baseball at Canoga Park in Woodland Hills, California. The team was special. As six players on that squad would go on to sign pro contracts, uh, including future Hall of Famer Robin Yount, who was the team's bat boy, and Robin's big brother Larry Yount, who had a a veritable moonlight grand career by becoming the only pitcher to make an MLB appearance without facing a batter. On September 15, 1971, Larry injured his elbow during warm-ups in the first inning of a game between his Astros and the Atlanta Braves. And he was taken out of the game before facing anyone, giving him the dubious distinction of getting the appearance while not facing anyone. And little did he know that that would be his only shot. The Woodland Hill All-Stars, as they were called, they had a great coach and a mentor in Mr. John Jennings. A tall, slender man, stood about six foot three, and he was always puffing on these expensive cigars, and carried around his briefcase. He loved his players. And the team of boys genuinely loved him back. And I still remember Dipper saying he was a great guy with a huge heart for his team. He had a soft spot for kids who couldn't afford to travel or have spending money for motels and food. 
Or maybe a kid couldn't afford cleats or a new glove. Mr. Jennings was always there to foot the bill. As far as the kids were concerned, he was good old Mr. Jennings, a successful insurance agent by day and beloved little league manager in the evenings. And the parents loved him as well. This selfless John taking care of their kids and uh, instilling sports and competition in their youngins. They loved him so much they would invite him and his deep pockets into their weekly poker night game. Also, Mr. Jennings had a son, Steve, and he was the star catcher of the, the team. So no one doubted that this pillar in the community had all their kids' best interest at heart. And by the time Pony League started, there was a slew of bank robberies in the surrounding areas of Los Angeles. Uh, six in total thus far. The first bank hit was the Bank of America in Silmore, California. Two men came in, one slender, tall fella. Uh, he was in a disguise, packing a thirty-eight pistol. And his partner was a shorter, stockier dude, carrying a rifle of some sort. The two would get away with $8,752. And it's important to tell you that $8,752 in 1963 is worth $81,000, 131 in the 2022 economy. Two weeks later, a second bank was knocked over, again in Sylmore, as two suspects from the robbery two weeks before were seen absconding with $33,000, in both instances, no one was hurt or arrested. Thirty-three thousand dollars in nineteen sixty-three is worth three hundred twenty thousand dollars today. And it was then that the media gave the duo a nickname: the Mutt and Jeff Bandits. Now, Mutt and Jeff were famous, famous gambling degenerate comic strip characters back then. Uh, you can go to your Google machine and see the many things they have on them. Mutt and Jeff are generally regarded as the first daily comic strip in the world, as their misadventures were seen in newspapers around the country. Mutt was the tall, slender character, and Jeff, his short and stout companion, uh, they were the descriptions that matched the robber's identity. I believe one of the tellers even said they looked like Mutt and Jeff. So, the name caught on. And there was a ripple of concern in the neighborhood, but that was washed away by these amazing all-stars of Woodland Hills who could really play baseball. The all-stars played their first tournament that year in Lancaster, California. Bruce Davis, a player on the team and best friend of Mr. Jennings' son, Steve, decided to ride the chip trip with Steve and his father to, uh, to Lancaster. As the car begins to drive through the desert... Mr. Jen Jennings casually turns to the boys and he says, I want you guys to know something. There's treasure buried in that desert there, and one day you're going to know all about it. The first day of the tournament, the buzz in the stands was all about how the bank in Lancaster got hit by the Mutt and Jeff Bandits just two hours earlier. Everyone was talking about it while watching Coach Jennings take the boys through their pregame routines and drills. And the boys and the parents were oblivious, talking about the robbery in their all-expenses-paid motel rooms. Did Jennings ever come under some uh, suspicion? Not one second. 
Sure, he was tall and slender, but he was also respected in the community, and John was never seen with anyone who even remotely resembled the Jeff character. No one suspected anything, not even third baseman Terry Hankins' father, Hank, who was the lead detective on the case for the Los Angeles Police Department. In fact, Hank and Jennings were close friends during that season and often played poker together. Court records show that Martin Jeff Bandits, they pulled off two of their biggest capers in July of that 1963 summer. Right in the middle of baseball season, the duo would knock over two more Bank of Americas, one in Anaheim for $25,000 and a branch in Burbank for $27,645. That's uh, $250,000 and $271,000 respectfully in today's economy here in 2022. Mr. Jennings did leave enough breadcrumbs for it all to add up, but no one had a clue, and it just kept going on and on. One day, John was losing big in poker to Detective Hankins, and Jennings goes into his always present briefcase and took a roll of money out that he had just robbed from from the Burbank job. He throws the cash on the table, and with a wry smile, he asks Hankins, if the money looked familiar. And Detective Hank had no idea what he was talking about. And everyone is on a roll now. No one can stop the Woodland Hills All-Stars as they are undefeated going into early August. And the police have no idea how to catch the elusive Mutt and Jeff Bandits. The All-Stars won the Western Division Tourney in National City, California with a pair of 3 nothing wins over Kearney Mesa. The Mutt and Jeff Bandits? Well, they're cleaning up as well. Knocking over Banks and Encino, Reseda, Van Nuys, Northridge. Every time, same modus operandi. Tall guy, short guy, pistols, no one hurts. Robbers get away with the Skrilla. Uh, that summer, the Pony League All-Stars weren't the only prepubescent heroes in the hood as the Grenada Hills team of 11, 12-year-olds qualified for the Little League World Series in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. And with a record of 12-0, the Pony League World Series extended an invitation to Woodland All-Stars in Washington, Pennsylvania. And Mr. Jennings and the team proudly accepted the invitation and he told the parents and the kids it was all expenses paid by yours truly. Now, unfortunately, the All-Stars finally lost game number 13, a crushing first-round loss to a team from Evansville, Indiana. But the boys returned home to a hero's welcome at LAX. The kids were treated to a day of amusement park rides at Pacific Ocean Park in Santa Monica. The team was also honored between games of a Dodgers doubleheader. Some of the members of the team even participated in first pitch ceremonies for the Yankees-Dodgers World Series that, that year. After the memorable season, the boys returned to school. And the Met and Jeff Jeff Bandits were back to robbing banks. There was a robbery in Tarzana at another Bank of America. 
the same bank where only three months before Stephen Cohn, Steve's dad, and Mr. Jennings were there inquiring about future investments. And Cohen can still remember staring at that wanted poster directly behind the manager's desk. And when he looked at the poster later, it's unquestionably Mr. Jennings. But in the moment, it was never even a thought. Jennings was obviously there that day to case the joint in retrospect. The bandits then hit Garden City and Gardena less than a month apart. And like the All-Stars, the bandits' luck would run out. Job number 13. On November 14th. November 4th, 1963, the bandits would hit the Bank of America in Panorama City. They were armed with 38 revolvers. They left the bank with $20,373 in cash, which is worth about 200 grand in today's bloated economy. Unfortunately for the bandits, Paul Rosenbluth, who would later be identified as Jeff, would be spotted jumping a fence two blocks from the bank as the two were attempting to switch cars. A witness who saw the whole thing reported the license plate, and the jig was up. The next day, FBI agents raided Jennings' offices and found the two counting the money. According to bank documents, the money was everywhere, on the tables, windowsills, inside wastebasks, Baskets stuffed in between couch cushions all over the office. And both robbers immediately admitted their guilt during the raid. Within a week, the news broke, leaving the kids and parents both shocked and disturbed to see their baseball manager on the news as one half of this infamous duo. Apparently, the Little League coach and his accomplice, Paul Rosenbluth, they were the real Mutt and Jeff Bandits, robbing 13 banks in 11 months for a grand total of $150,000, a total that is equivalent now to $1.4685 million. It was Mr. Jennings who was the brain setting up the tactics and the strategy of the hits, while Rosenbluth was the muscle, keeping victims calm, watching Jennings back while he collected the loot. It was then Rosenbluth's responsibility to bury the money in the desert. He had no association with the team whatsoever, although the boys did see him around a couple of times. So, the innocuous story Jennings told Bruce and Steve in the car on the way to Lancaster was 100% true. When the local news broke the story, there was Rosenbluth and Jennings on TV helping agents recover money in the same desert they had just driven through months ago. Randy Cohen, the ace pitcher of the team, he went 8-0 that season. And he would later pitch in the Orioles minor league system. He still has a lot of those black and white photos of that remarkable team and coach. And sometimes he admits he blankly stares at them, still not understanding the full scope of that season. Teammate Bruce Davis, he reached out to his former manager years later, asking for an exclamation. Explanation. And Jennings told him he had been a failure all of life, all of his life. He was an ex-Marine. And in his words, it was the only time he was successful at anything before coaching that team. 
And there were two things in life that he loved, baseball and success. So he decided to lead a Pony League team to the Pennsylvania World Series. And robbing banks began on a whim when, you know, he had to figure out how to finance that team. Even John and Paul's wives and kids had no idea what those two men were up to. Jennings and Rosenbluth each received a 10-year sentence in federal prison from his jail cell at McNeil Island, Washington. John wrote the judge asking for a quicker parole, noting that his family was bearing the brunt of his shame and and being humiliated unfairly, victims of an association for crimes that they had no knowledge of. He was granted parole after seven and a half years served, and he would die of esophageal cancer in 1986. Rosenbluth, meanwhile, is still alive. He's living in Las Vegas, Nevada. In 1991, he was jailed again for robbing a bank in Pasadena, California. And a year later, he would be connected to another robbery in Thousand Oaks. As I told you in the beginning... Uh, six of the 15 players on that Pony League team went on to play professional baseball. Some of the parents were connected to the in- entertainment industry. Uh, Larry Yount, who started Taft High School in Woodland Hills, was a fifth-round draft pick by Houston in 1968. I already told you about his Moonlit Graham Trivial Pursuit moment. The only pitcher on baseball reference to making an appearance without facing a batter, he would go on to be his little brother Robin's agent. Uh, speaking of Robin, the team's bat boy. And he became a pretty good baseball player. Following in his brother's footsteps, he was drafted number three overall by the Brewers of Milwaukee in the 1973, 1973 MLB amateur draft out of Taft High School. He would finish his career with uh, two MVP awards, a gold glove, three all-star appearances, and a plaque for his induction into the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. Robin's Robin Yount's final career stats, let me see here. 20-year career, all with the Brewers, 77.3 wins above replacement, 3,142 hits, 251 home runs, 1,406 RBI, a 115 OPS+, plus, and a 285, 342, 430 slash. Cohen, Davis, and Hankins, they graduated from Canoga Park High School and signed contracts. Cohen, I mentioned, signed with the Orioles. Uh, Davis was drafted by the Angels, and Hankins was an 11th round pick by the Braves in 1967. Arnold Murillo, a first baseman on the team. He was also taken by Atlanta in the second round of the 1967 MLB Draft. Dempsey, the youngest and last person voted on the team, played pitcher, shortstop, and first base. He was drafted out of Crespi High School in Encino by the Twins as a catcher. Uh, Rick Dempsey's final MLB stat line, let's take a look at it. 24-year career with the Orioles, Twins, Dodgers, Brewers, and Tribe. 25.2 war, 1,093 hits. 96 home runs, 471 RBI, 87 OBS plus, and a 233, 319, 347 slash. Bruce Cohen, he would wind up reconnecting with his second base team in the Orioles farm system, Ron Shelton, to see if there was any interest in the story. 
because it was Shelton who became famous for writing and directing a slew of sports-related movies, starting with Bull Durham. And at one point, Cohen handed over all his photos and papers and everything he had through the years to Shelton. Shelton thought it was a remarkable story, but he was unable to shop it around to his Hollywood connects. In 2009, Columbia Pictures and Adam Sandler's production company, Happy Madison, brought the untitled script, but the deadline to act on the project expired, and now the story is virtually dead in the water as far as Hollywood is concerned. As the setting of the story returns to Bleachers, my former job, where Rick is telling this amazingly true tale. The eight of us are huddled around the dipper with our mouths agape, hinging on every single word coming out of his mouth. And I remember him saying with a chuckle, he, he you know, Mr. Jennings, he just wanted to be a big shot. The bandits returned about $40,000 and even the cops call them high livers. They, they love looking like big-time players, blowing money at the horse track and on Jennings' baseball team. When the former catcher finished recounting this tale, there was a good minute where we looked at Dempsey in silence. And I don't know about anybody else, but I, I was waiting for the punchline. It, it never came, and the crazy story came out to be true. And I turned to Ernie, who grew up in the Orioles uh, system as a bad boy in the 70s. Like I told you, uh, this is a guy who has seen it all. I'm telling you, he's seen it all. A guy that that Earl Weaver once threatened to kill during a game because he was uh, throwing these those snap-pop noisemakers in the Orioles' dugout. And he threatened to kill that kill Ernie. And Ernie was like an 11-year-old kid, scared for his life. He's seen it all, and even Ernie was speechless. And in my brain, I can't help but think about all the fucking horseshit movies nowadays about fake shit. Or, uh, and a real gem like this goes unwritten. I, I can't help but think this movie would be amazing if properly written. So much so, I'm totally throwing my hat in the ring to write this script, and I, I mean it. My mind goes back to 1983, when Rick Dempsey was handed his World Series MVP trophy, and President Reagan called him live on the TV feed. And some of you may remember Rick Dempsey saying to President Reagan, you tell those Russians we're having an awful good time playing baseball over here in America. And right there, with my creative license in hand, that would be my first scene in my, my movie, my open. I would have President Reagan ask the Dipper, have you ever seen anything crazier in your life? To which I would have Matthew McConaughey playing Dempsey say, Mr. President, I actually have. And let me tell you a story. And there you have it, folks. The first line of the greatest baseball story never told. Starring Matthew McConaughey as the adult dipper, Will Ferrell as Mutt, and Je- Jeff Bla- Jack Black as Jeff. <laughs> I-, I really want to write the script. And, you know... Maybe after I finish uh, the Hogan's Hero script that I'm working on right now, maybe I can go on to that. So, I want to thank you guys for checking into our show. I hope you enjoyed it. There's not a lot of research out there for this topic. I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, there's, there's, there's like an article from the Baltimore Sun and the LA Times, and that's about it. So, unless you're friends with Dempsey, Yout, or any of those other guys on that team, it will 
probably remain one of the greatest, ball, greatest baseball stories never heard. And honestly, I'm just glad to hear the story. Not only hear it, but to have a platform like this to share it on with you guys. With all you freaking steam, steam heads out there. Uh, speaking of platforms, you can find me on all of them practically. By next week, I will also be on Pandora. I'll let you know about that on the next show. The YouTube page is under construction. Please check us out and subscribe. That's on the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network YouTube page. And the train rolls on. Next week, we will be examining one of the biggest baseball scandals ever. As big as steroids and the 1919 World Series uh, affair. Next week, we'll be taking on the Pittsburgh drug trials of 1979. When some of the biggest stars in baseball were buying cocaine out of the Pirates Clubhouse. But uh, look. That's another story for another pod. Parents, if you see your kid looking bored, sitting on the couch, by all means, take him or her outside and play a game of catch. Thank you all for coming out. God bless and good night.